This is the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, a business owner who knows that time is your most valuable resource. We're recording this episode in what is now week three of a stay-at-home order for me. And as the world is changing, my business is evolving to accommodate the new normal. Now more than ever is the time to innovate and create a solution for new needs that have arisen for your audience or client base. But make sure it's worth your time. Today, we're talking to Elaine Pofelt, an independent journalist and speaker who specializes in careers and entrepreneurship. She's the author of the book, The Million Dollar One Person Business, where she studies how entrepreneurs are scaling to $1 million in revenue prior to hiring employees. Spoiler alert, it's all about innovative business ideas and income diversification. Here's Elaine on how she became a business owner. I, I was a staffer at Fortune Small Business Magazine for eight years, loved every minute of it. But once I had three children, I decided that too much of my life was logistics and planning what I was going to be doing when I was not in whatever other place I was not in and decided what I really loved was writing and journalism and that I could do that on my own just as well as I could on staff. I had spent a long time in that field. I had a pretty big network. And I, I did have a lot of exposure to running a business because I wrote about entrepreneurship. So I thought, well, now is the time for me to apply what I've been learning all these years. And I, I just took the leap. At the time, my three children were under the age of four. And it was kind of a crazy time to start a business. It was 2007. And then a year later, we had the Great Recession. <laughs> so I, I learned a lot the hard way. But I think it made me stronger as a business owner. Were you thinking of yourself as a business owner when you decided to to leave Fortune and write on your own? Because I think that the term business owner, people have different uh, associations with that. I did. And I think there are a lot of freelancers who don't. They think of themselves almost as an employee of the companies they serve. But I always went in feeling like I was a business owner. I didn't feel I was an entrepreneur in the sense of somebody who would scale a business because that wasn't my ambition at that time. I wanted a balanced life where I could spend time with my kids without being frantic that I wasn't getting my work done and have a lot of flexibility. Um, but I, you know, when you pay your taxes, you are a business owner. <laughs> it becomes pretty clear that you've got to do things in a business-like way, even if you're a writer and a creative. Um, and so that always was in my mind. And I, I viewed it as a long-term thing. I really... Um, I realized that corporate life had been great for me up until that point. But now that I had a pretty big family and now I have four children, that it, it just wasn't compatible with the level of flexibility that was available at that time. And I did have a very flexible arrangement. It was one of the most flexible I ever heard of, but I still had the logistics of a big family. Um, and I never looked back. I love it. I, I, I have no desire to go back into a job. I can definitely relate to your story as someone that came from corporate media and then I had a child and I always thought I'm going to be on this path and I'm going to have my boss's job and then my boss's boss's job. And then it was just amazing to me how your priorities shift when your life changes, you have a family and you suddenly you look at the job you thought was the dream job and you don't want it anymore. But I don't want to romanticize the freelance life because 
you've been able to navigate it, but there are a lot of steps into being able to put together an income from a lot of different sources. So can we break that down a little bit in how you scaled, even though you weren't thinking as as an entrepreneur, how you actually scaled to the point that you were able to leverage the contacts you had and the expertise you had to make as much money or more than you were when you were in-house? Sure. It was really a learning process, Simona, where I made a lot of mistakes the first two years. In the beginning, I was just going from project to project. And when the recession hit, I realized that wasn't a very good model because when you're a freelancer, what happens when cash flow slows at your clients? Well, they make payroll, but they don't pay you until 120 days later. And I still had bills to pay. My husband also earns an income, but we live in New Jersey. It's expensive. And I know you live in Los Angeles. It's tough. No joke. (laughs) So I said, I have to do something differently. And then out of the blue, one of my clients who was doing a lot of work with me when I was at Fortune um, wanted to put me on retainer so that I would be more available to him to do all kinds of projects. And so that worked out beautifully. And I realized, okay, that brings some cash flow stability. So I became more open to retainer arrangements. You have to be aware of your time, right? So if you're saying, I'm going to do about 20 hours a week for this person, you have to be available for those 20 hours. But that was a trade-off that I wanted. And I still was able to do the other projects. And then I started over time introducing other services that complemented journalism, which everybody knows is low paying. It's next to kind of a nonprofit Mm -hmm. career. And (laughs) I started doing things like ghostwriting, where I would have clients who, for instance, owned a company and were so busy but had a great story to tell that they were willing to bring on a ghostwriter to help them and were relieved to have me. And so that was something that was higher paying than journalism and allowed me to use the exact same skills. And so I've created a mix where I offer those services. Um, Then over time, I also added a coaching component. Uh, I realized that there were a lot of people who needed ghostwriting help and had a great story to tell and maybe didn't have the time or the writing ability or the inclination to write and needed a ghostwriter too, but couldn't afford the full service, just hand off the book to Elaine kind of project. And so now I offer coaching to them where they do the writing and I serve as a professional editor, bringing the rigor that I had at Fortune to the work that they do so that they get a real editing experience and can grow as writers. So, you know, it's been an evolution, but I think to your point about the challenges, a lot of running a freelance business, especially a creative business, is also mastering the cash flow aspects, because if you cannot get on top of that, you really won't have a business. And I've seen a lot of friends who just couldn't really think about that part of the business. They hate it. They dread it have to go back into jobs because of that. Well, let's let's break that down. When you say managing the cash flow, what is a way that an entrepreneur that's new to doing that can get started and do it successfully? The truth is you need an invoicing software to stay organized. I realized this because the first year in business, I used Excel spreadsheets to keep track of my invoices and and when they came in and my husband, there was one month where he said, Elaine, it seems like you made almost no money this month. I'm like, no, no, no. I made the same amount. And then I get this letter from Time Inc. saying, we sent you this $5,000 check and you've never cashed it for the last six months. Do you need us to reissue it? And I had not even noticed that I wasn't paid $5,000 because I was so disorganized. And so I'm like, this is it. And that was, that was actually when I got fresh books. And then I never lost track of anything because I would just 
when I got an assignment, I would put it right into FreshBooks and I would just put a, you know, a future date, which I would update later when I actually sent out the invoice um, so that I knew that eventually I had to invoice for that. And if I saw some that hadn't gone out, I would say, hey, wait a minute, did this project come to fruition? What happened? And, and stay on top of it that way. But the other part of it is also looking at when you send them out. So if you wait until the bitter end, three weeks after you finish the project to send out the invoice, a lot of companies are on a payment cycle. Like they pay every 30 days and the 30 days starts the date you send the invoice. So I learned to start sending them as soon as the project was done. I used to kind of feel like it was impolite to ask for the pay right afterward. I know that's crazy, but I'm like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. You did the work. Yeah, I did the work. They expect me to bill them. And maybe they actually want it this month because they they like to close out the projects. We totally did not pay her to say this, by the way. Elaine, who's been a longtime FreshBooks user, is just telling it like it is. But really, I love what Elaine just said here. We need to get over the shame we feel about asking for money that we've earned. Consider what Elaine said. Maybe instead of seeing financial conversations as awkward... Perhaps asking for the value of your work might actually make you look more professional and organized. Food for thought. What about income projections and planning as a freelancer? Because sometimes I think it can feel like, where am I going to get this money from? How am I going to get these clients? How am I going to close these deals? I find that it helps to look ahead to what do you want to make next quarter, next year, I'm curious how you do it and how you've coached clients to be able to do this themselves. What I did from the first month of my business, which has actually served me really well, was I left my job and I said, I have to make basically the same amount at least this month. So how do I reverse engineer it? How much do I have to make this week and then the next week and the next week? And I didn't get exactly to where I was the first year. I made close to it, but not quite because of just not knowing how to run a business, you know, things like sending late invoices out and that sort of thing. But over time, I, I started to get a sense by studying the patterns in my invoicing software of like, okay, what do I make in an average month? And am I kind of behind it? Like, have I not sent any invoices out for three weeks? Well, why didn't I? Am I just taking too long on projects? Like, what can I do to bring projects to completion so I can invoice for them? And I would think that way. Now, another thing that I did, which was many years later was to start asking for deposits on big projects. I used to be financing these whole giant projects, but as I started doing book projects, which are very big and can take the whole year or more sometimes, I said, wait a minute, I I'm, I'm a freelance writer. I can't finance this whole thing. Plus they don't even need me to. These are people that run pretty substantial sized businesses. And this is you know tiny compared to what their output is. They don't mind. So just ask for a 50% deposit or ask for quarterly progress payments. So this was part of the learning curve. And I, I, I don't know, I just didn't know to do it. But then you learn and you realize, wow, that made my life a lot easier and I can breathe and I kind of know, okay, this is how much money I will make for the next six months. But you have to do the work too then. That's the, that's the challenge, right? To, to do the work and to get it all done. And especially when it's not like you're working for a company where you can say to your boss, like, look, I'm managing six projects. I have to put this one on the back burner. Everyone has to feel like they're your number one project. How do you manage your time and also make everybody feel like their work is important to you and you're getting it done? 
Well, check-ins are really good for that. I, I find it keeps me accountable. Like if I know I've got to talk to somebody on Tuesday and I said I'm going to do the chapter by Tuesday, then I better have it done. And then when I plan my week, I think about, okay, well, I have to do that chapter and I've got to do this other thing for so-and-so. So what else can I take on this week? Maybe nothing. I better get these things done. You know, you do have to look a little bit ahead during the week. And because I have a lot of children too, and all their school activities and everything else, I've got to plan around that and say, okay, not only do I have all this other work, but so-and-so has a school concert tonight and I'm not going to be able to work after four o'clock and and really factor that in. It it takes a while. And sometimes you mess up and it's two o'clock in the morning and you're doing the project and you're kicking yourself, but then you, you hopefully you course correct and say, all right, I'm not doing that to myself tomorrow, you know, or the next time. I just can't do that anymore. Sometimes it's hard to say no when you have that opportunity and you're like, I want to do it all. And I theoretically should be able to do it all, but you can't be everywhere at once. And I think that's one, one of the things that's very attractive about entrepreneurship, though, is that you can fit in these other elements of your life, like you said, to be able to leave at four o'clock for your kid's recital or performance. Like that was unheard of when I was working a corporate job. Oh, You're no, there you from nine yeah. to seven, at least, and that's your day. I know. It's hard on parents. I think it's gotten better because it's much more common now for people to work from home or telecommute and Nobody apologizes for it. When I telecommuted, it was very unusual. And I remember I had a VPN line and the tech guy said, you must know someone really high up in timing to have this. I'm like, no, actually, I'm just you know, a regular employee. I just telecommute a lot. And, and you know what to ask for to be able to get your job done too. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we don't know what to ask. We don't know what resources we need or what, you know, how there's like this fear that if I ask for too much, then they'll They'll say, forget you and move on to the next person. For most of you, you're now the boss. So it's up to you to design your work life in a way that works for you. And if you have employees, look for ways to support them in doing their best work, but also living their best life. In fact, the Harvard Business Review recently published studies that showed an average of 31% more productivity and 37% higher sales when employees are happy or satisfied. Yeah, no, I think you're right. People are fearful of of keeping their jobs and that sort of thing. But but I mean, that's why freelancing is nice because you don't have to worry about a lot of things that you do in corporate America. Like, oh no, I'll be 50 years old and I'll be too old to be a techie, you know, or the things that people cope with in corporate America, you're in control of your own career, which is what I love. I mean, in my book, The Million Dollar One Person Business, I looked at people of all ages, including well into their 60s, who are starting businesses and it doesn't matter what age you are, right? As long as you have the drive to do it and the qualifications and you're able to sell, which is important. Everybody, you've got to figure out some way you can sell. Even if you're an extreme introvert, it might be online. But if you can do those things, then you can have a business and no one can ever tell you you can't do it anymore because of a corporate reorg or replace you with somebody half your age just to get you off the payroll. You're in charge. Okay, let's talk about that because I I know that's what our listeners are really eager to hear. How do you scale? How do you grow that business to a million dollars, two million dollars and beyond? And selling, what are some strategies for learning to sell? Because a lot of our listeners, they didn't come from a background of sales. I didn't come from a background of sales, but I found that 
like you said, that's crucial to be able to make money. You have to be able to sell the service that you're offering. It's really different for each business. So what I usually recommend is people find some way of selling that they're comfortable with. When I first started my business, the first day of the business, I I realized I didn't know how to run a business. So I called all the freelancers I had been hiring and I said, can you give me some advice on what I'm supposed to do? How do I actually get assignments? Because I haven't been out there freelancing for a long time. And one of them said, oh, you know, um, Good Housekeeping contacted me and they had this assignment, but I really wasn't interested in it. So let me connect you to the editor. And then next thing I knew, my first assignment was with Good Housekeeping. You know, and I think there's a lot of people that have people that they've had friendly relationships with in their corporate life who, if you just call and ask them for advice and they find out what you're trying to do, will try to help you. And so I think that's the first step. I had other people say, subscribe to this freelancing newsletter. I got some work through that newsletter. I used that for years. It was called Freelance Success. It cost $99, good investment, more than paid for itself. So there might be little things like that that in your industry people know about. You could, um, I didn't use the freelance platforms, but I know a lot of them have now been catering more towards enterprise work, like Upwork, where they want you to do consistent work for certain enterprise clients again and again. And the way the payment structure is, it rewards that sort of consistency. So that can be a way to break in. If say you're a less experienced freelancer and you don't have much of a network yet to get some credentials and you know get, get some clips or representations of your work so that you can go and get the next client. That's on a platform. So people will find you and there's less selling. But in terms of mindset with selling, if you really think about how you can be of service to other people, people will come to you. Like the ghostwriting I do, I don't market it. People always find out about it through word of mouth. And the original client suggested it to me because people needed it. And then when they when they started asking me for it, I thought, okay, how do I deliver this in a way that's really useful to them and makes them really happy that they offloaded this to me? How did you decide what the price point should be for that in the beginning? Networking. I <laughs> Then you asked other people asked who were doing I, it. I asked other writers that I thought were a similar level of experience to me and could go after the same type of clients, what they charged. And then I looked, you know, at the average and I kind of went with that. Now, over time, I've, I've raised the price for it because there's some extra things that I do for people that I realized had value, like helping them find an agent and book proposals and things like that. But that's only really been recent as I realized that other ghostwriters don't do those things. And I was kind of throwing it in, but it was taking me so much time that I felt like you actually help your clients if you charge appropriately for your work, because if you're having to shoehorn in a lot of other projects because you charge too little for something, then you're not serving them because it makes you late and they Mm -hmm. prefer it if you charge the right amount and deliver what you say when, you know, when you say you're going to deliver it. Consider these three things when you price your projects. The entire amount of time you will spend, any resources, tools, or team members you will bring to the project, and most importantly, the value of your expertise. It might only take you an hour to complete a project, but you have to remember the many years of experience it took you to be able to execute that quickly. Even after 15 years as a business owner, this is still difficult for me. So pro tip, keep detailed records of your past projects and the time and resources you devoted to them. Bonus tip, 
Think of ways you can add value without adding time. Here's an example from my business. I include extra online video and audio programs with my in-person client services. These are assets that I've previously produced, which won't take any more of my time to deliver them, but will add value to my client's experience. Okay, now that we are charging what we are worth, I had to ask Elaine the million dollar question. Like literally, how do you get to a million dollars? One is getting really, really good at what you do and charging a very high hourly rate. And I see that sometimes with tech people. They're people that charge up to $1,000 an hour, right? If you're that good, charge it, right? Then you don't have to work that many hours. You still make a lot of money. I find a lot of our listeners, they are, they're doing a service-based business, but there's this point where you have to be able to scale. And when you're charging just time for money, you hit, there's a threshold that you hit. There's only Absolutely. so many hours in the day and there's, there's, there's a, only so much you can charge for, for your specific time. And that's, you know what, that's the, the part where they start to scale because they're in a world of pain. You know, there's, there's a point where in every business, maybe it's like 200,000 to 500,000 in revenue. You can get there depending on what it is just by hustling and working all the time. But then people get to the breaking point where they're like, I cannot do another project. I'm using every single minute of the day and the weekend and my vacation time. And no one in my life even gets to talk to me. And then they realize they have to do something differently. There, there are a lot of different ways to get out of the time for money. You know, One example, someone I've written about from Forbes, Selena Sue was a publicist. And she found she actually didn't like the traditional PR model of delivering services. So she created a course and that became her million dollar plus business, right? Think of all the publicists that are hustling out there. They're probably at like 300,000 in revenue if they're really good. And they're working 24 and they're working seven all the time. She doesn't do that. She makes a lot of money through the course and she, she used Facebook marketing to promote it and she continues to build that. She's added other courses. So that's called, I call it informational marketing. There are a lot of different ways you can do that. Um, say you're an accountant and you have an expertise in some wonky but very necessary area of the tax code, right? That a lot of people consult with you about. Instead of telling a hundred people about it, why not have a webinar and charge people to come to it? I had to do that um, for a story for creditcards.com that I wrote once where I attended a webinar, I had to pay two or $300 about some very obscure change in credit card law. I can't even tell you what it was. I can't even remember what it was. But these two attorneys got together. They hired a webinar company. They charged us each that amount of money. There were 600 people on the call. Think about how profitable that hour was, including any prep time they put in and whatever they paid to the, the company. Then they aired it again other days, two other days, and they also charge the same amount. Right? And they just re it's a replay. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So and very that's, smart. And there's a lot of experts out there in these professional services firms that they think everybody knows what they know, but we don't, right? I don't know what my accountant knows. I don't know what my attorney knows. It's easy for them. It's not easy for me and vice versa. People don't know how to write a book. I know how to write one. So it's valuable. So, you know, maybe a corollary for my business would be I could start a course on book writing. 
something like that. You, Do you I want mean, to start a course on book writing? Um, I've thought of it. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's in the back of my mind, but you have to think about also how much time you have, what you want to focus on at the moment. Focus is very important. We recorded this interview way before there were even reports of coronavirus. It feels like it's almost been years since that time. There's absolutely no way to anticipate moments like world pandemics, economic instability, or even personal hardships. My point is that when times get tough, it's a good idea to set up sources of passive income and diversify your offerings. That way, even if you don't have the ability to work with clients face-to-face, you can still make money from a course or book sales. But like Elaine says, don't lose sight of the goal. It's important that all of these income streams still add value to your business above and beyond just bringing in profit. And keep in mind, it might require an investment up front to get it off the ground. I see a lot of people that when they, they start making money in their small business, they're scared to spend it. They live very frugally and there's always confusion on when you should put money out to be able to grow the business and whether you'll get that back. Yeah, I think a, a lot of new business owners come from a background where they were employees, where the employer always paid if they had to take a course to learn something new or how to go to a conference. And it's a big mind shift to say, I have to invest in myself. Upwork just did some research, their freelancing in America survey that showed that successful freelancers do invest quite a bit in themselves to grow professionally. That's how they keep their edge in winning new business. So it's really important to break out of that. And maybe you do it in small ways, like I'm just going to do this $99 online course in something that I really need to know. And then you invest as you get more money into the business. It's similar to outsourcing, right? Ideally, you'd be outsourcing 10 things and just focusing on what you do best. But if it's your first year in business and you have no money coming in, how are you going to outsource it? You have to just pick one thing, maybe like I'll just outsource the bookkeeping or just something that you know you're not doing, but is really necessary. Or I'm not going to be my own web designer. Maybe it costs $500 to hire somebody or $1,000 to put up a really good website And that's the one thing I'll outsource this year. Well, and it makes a difference, too, when you are doing it yourself, you're bootstrapping the business. Like, I only know so much about web design. When people tell me, I'm just going to design my own website on Wix, I'm like, good luck to you if you don't have that background. And you have to really consider the cost-benefit analysis, right? And like, what what are you going to get back? How much of your time is it going to take for you to learn how to become a web designer? And how good is the product going to be in the end versus if you just paid someone who's an expert in that or paid someone, you know, to ghost write your book for you? Uh, I agree. I, I don't outsource every single thing, but I outsource everything that I possibly can. I keep trying to evolve in that way. And I think every freelancer, we can challenge ourselves to say, could I just, you know, spend 200 bucks and hand this off? and spend more time getting a new big client or doing a really great job on this project so that the client just comes to me the next time. I love how casually Elaine just threw out the idea that clients will come to you, but inquiring minds want to know, how do you get your clients to come to you? Well, I think a lot of people, it's similar to writing a book, actually, where people want to express themselves through their business. And like, my passion is cooking, and I'm going to start a business related to cooking. Meanwhile, 
you know, maybe the, what they want to cook, there's no demand for in their area or there's no good place to sell it. And then they, their business fails because they, they don't really think about what's needed. If you, if you come to things with the idea like, okay, I've got a pain point or people I know are complaining about this and then do small experiments, you can avoid the risk. One, one person who is really great at this, Laszlo Nadler, who I mentioned in the opening chapter of the book, worked for Bank of America as a project manager very good on time management, as you would imagine. You've probably worked with project managers. I, sure. I love how they are. You know, I'm not like that in terms of, you know, trains run on time. And what he did was he created a planner. He put it on Amazon while he was still working at Bank of America. And it was about how to go towards your life's biggest goals as opposed to, you know, what is on my to-do list. It was very inspirational, inspirational quotes. And when he put it out there, he got feedback in terms of people actually bought it, which is good. He used print on demand, so it wasn't such a big investment. And then as he got feedback in from the customers, he'd refine it. And over time, it, it went from about $14,000 a year in revenue the first year you know, to the next level. And then finally, he got it up to $2 million. Um, But in between, when he got to about six figures, he felt like, okay, I can quit my job and devote myself to this full time. I have enough income to pay my mortgage. His, his wife had young children and was staying home at that point to do it responsibly. And so he took the risk out of it. Um, another thing you could do, there's a great site that I just learned about from another couple in the book, Camille and Ben Arneberg. It's called Pickfoo, P-I-C-K-F-U. <laughs> and what you can do is a horse race between different names that you're thinking about for a brand. So, because some things, the brand name is really important to selling it. And depending on how much you pay, you can get pretty sophisticated demographic information about who's answering and comments from them. So you could and test- what they think about that. Yeah. So, um, so part of it is also letting go of your own ego. Like, I know what people want and saying, okay, let me just open myself to the universe or to what people say and see what kind of inputs are coming in. What are people understanding about what I'm saying? What are they not understanding? What are they relating to? Then you make an educated decision. You may still go with what you think, but mm -hmm. you're coming from a position of, of knowing how the customer thinks. You're going into listening mode instead of broadcast mode, which yeah, is something yeah. that uh, it's a hard lot to of do though. with. I want to know what makes your life more livable. And we do this segment called Tips or Tools. Do you have a tool that you couldn't live without or a tip that you have picked up along the way that you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. Well, one I love is Boomerang for Gmail because as a mother who works unconventional hours, I, sometimes I have to send emails at weird times of day and you feel like sometimes people keep tones and alerts on their phone so you can program it to go at a normal hour. I do that with invoicing too. Sometimes I just batch them all and I'm like, oh, it's Saturday afternoon. I don't want to send this to the client now. It'll get lost in their inbox. So I program it to go on Monday at a certain time. So there's that. I like Everlance a lot, which tracks my mileage. It's a tedious, boring task that... No one should do manually. It's really cheap and you just put it on your mobile phone. Definitely um, schedule once is another one for scheduling appointments because I schedule so many. I, I have set a goal for myself of getting back seven hours a week through the use of apps. Using schedule once gets me back at least four hours because I'm a reporter. So I schedule a lot of interviews and it's like you're going back and forth, back and forth. You could spend the whole day 
emailing. And then people can just schedule. They just on pick their a own. time through the link, you know, that works for them among my available times. It also helps you protect your personal time because sometimes I say at the beginning of the week, look, I need to do some yoga this week and no matter what, I'm going to do it. And I put it in there. That time doesn't show up as available to somebody who wants to make an appointment. Now, if I really had to cancel it, a kid got sick at school or something, I would, but it makes you a little more committed to your personal commitments too because you've given people a lot of access to the other parts of your calendar. So th- those would be my top three. I know you asked for one, but they're my three favorites. Oh, I love all three of those. How are you doing on that goal of saving the seven hours a week? Oh, I definitely do. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I like this week, I can't even tell you how many appointments I've been scheduling. I might have saved the whole seven hours. If you've learned anything here today, it's that trading time for money can't scale. There's always something you can do to make your work more efficient like managing your calendar better or outsourcing the right projects or maybe starting a free trial of fresh books. Here are your key takeaways for today. Let your offering be dictated by the pain point you can solve for your clients. Freelancers are friends, not food. Make relationships with other freelancers who can get you in the know in your field and maybe even support you on a project. There are better ways to scale to a million dollars than working one-on-one with clients. Productize, delegate, and diversify your offerings. And real bosses bill for their time. Get that money, honey. You've earned it. Make sure you get your copy of The Million Dollar One-Person Business and see how you can scale up before even hiring your first employee. Everything is happening online today, whether we like it or not. But is your business set up to bill and manage your finances digitally? FreshBooks is the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. And we have an exclusive offer for you, our podcast listeners. See what we have for you at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. That's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our producer and director is Paco Arizmendi, and I'm Demona Hoffman, your host and producer. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Demona Hoffman, or you can find me at DemonaHoffman.com, where I'll show you how to navigate relationships during this trying time. Also, keep in mind that we have a Facebook community for you at Facebook.com slash I Make a Living. There you can share your story and hear how other entrepreneurs are navigating this difficult time. We'll also be dropping special bonus episodes that are laser focused on how to navigate your business during this time. So look out for those dropping midweek and we'll be back again Monday with regular episodes. And don't forget, time is money because it's your business. See you next week.